Good afternoon, church. Today I'll be reading the scripture from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30 to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. I invite you to stand on your feet to honor the word of the Lord, and I also invite you to read along with me on the count of three. One, two, three. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept the release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sewn in two, and they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Rach. Before we get into the sermon, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you still give us the time and the opportunity for us to be able to listen to your word. And God, I pray that we do not take this for granted. I pray that you continue to remind our heart and remind our soul and remind our mind that it is such a privilege for us to be able to hear what you have to say. And because your word has such power that it can radically transform our life, God. So I pray that you do that, God. Wherever we are right now, we might be in our living room, we might be in our bedroom, wherever we're tuning in from, we know, Lord, that you are not limited by time and space, that your word can change our life wherever we are right now. So God, we pray and I pray that you use my limited word to describe, to express the beauty and the glory of your word. And I pray as we hear your word, as we look and gaze upon the beauty of your son, may we be transformed by it. So speak to us, Lord. My word means nothing, but your word means everything to our life. We want to hear your word. So do that through my word. In your name we pray. Amen. One of the greatest speeches in the history of the world is one by Winston Churchill. So one day, Churchill, the great prime minister of England, was invited to his previous school that he graduated from to deliver a speech. So at the time, England was facing its greatest hour of turmoil. They experienced tremendous pressure of World War II against the Nazi Germany. So as Churchill was being introduced, the students waited with great anticipation at what 
Churchill will have to say. I mean, what would be the genius of this mastermind, right? The students were ready with their notebook open, ready to write down everything that Churchill had to say. So Churchill stood up and all the students with their pen in their hand. And you could hear a hush over the crowd. So Churchill came up to the podium and delivered his speech. And contrary to popular myth, it was not a 30-second speech. It was longer than that. But in the middle of his speech, he said a very powerful line that became legendary. He said, Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in. Accept the conviction of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. And that was the middle of his speech. So England was facing its greatest crisis, and its prime minister simply said, never give in. See, the book of Hebrew was written to a group of Jewish Christians who wanted to give in. See, they experienced persecution and tremendous pressure from people around them. So they began to wonder whether it was worth it to follow Jesus because they were tired, they were exhausted, they were rejected. And they, in fact, many of them gave in to the pressure and they walked away from Jesus. And to this audience, the author of Hebrews simply said, do not quit. Jesus is better. I know these are hard times. I know you are persecuted. I know you lost many things. I know some of you have been in prison. Some of you were tortured. But through faith, persevere to the end. Therefore, never, never give in. And to prove his case, he lists out names of different Old Testament heroes that live by faith. And that is our passage for today, Hebrews 11. So the purpose of Hebrews 11 is to encourage Christians to persevere in the Christian walk. Just like all the Old Testament heroes live by faith and persevere in faith, we are also called to live by faith and persevere in faith. So Hebrews 11 is written to deepen our confidence in God, promises that enable us to persevere. Now, why is this important? Because today, many Christians and unbelievers have distorted view of Christian faith. In fact, some of the largest church today are parts of the church that preach the Word of Faith movement. Okay. So the Word of Faith movement actually teaches the prosperity gospel. They say, if you believe it, if you have enough faith, it is yours. Now, a few weeks ago, um, I saw someone uh, posted Mark Wahlberg quote on his Instagram story. So Mark wrote, God never gives you a dream that matches your budget. He's not checking your bank account. He's checking your faith. To which the man wrote, that's it, bro. Now, before you're wondering who it was, let me tell you, it's not someone in our church. But according to this understanding, faith is simply the currency by which we accomplish our dream. So if things do not work out the way we expected, then what we need is we need more faith in our bank account. What we need is to store up more faith by what? By positive thinking, by good deeds. And when we eventually reach that stage where God sees that our faith is enough, then God will give us what we want. 
The problem with that is that is not how the Bible defines faith. So we need to understand this correctly or else it will destroy our relationship with God. Here's why. I'm sure all of us, we have these dreams, right? We have these promises, words of God that we hold on to, right? It might be healing from sickness. It might be restoration of family. Or it might be for our future, vision for our future. Or it might be a successful career. Or it might be as simple as God-loving spouse. So what happened was, well, we asked God for direction. And then we received confirmation. We walk on obedience. And we saw God open doors. And then the road split into two. Some experienced the blessing of God, while others are confused and frustrated at what seems to be never-ending struggles. And then a question arises in those who are struggling. Why, why, why? Right? And the modern church answer is this. The problem with you is you got to have more faith. you got to believe more. If you trust God more, then you will have it. But it's this faith. What happens? What happened when the breakthrough we expected never come? We have three options. First, well, God can, God is able, but God will not. God is not loveless enough to do it. Second, God is all-powerful, but, you know, sorry, God is all-loving, God will, but God cannot do it. Or third, our faith is defective, and God is not pleased with it. So there's something wrong with us. Now, can you see the problem? See, all these three options actually destroy our relationship with God. And in this passage, the author of Hebrew will finally put a nail in the covenant of prosperity gospel. And if we get what the author is saying about what faith is, we can handle anything. Whatever life throws at us will be okay. So I separate this sermon into three parts. We look at the power of faith, the value of faith, and the focus of faith. First one, the power of faith. Verse 30 to 35a. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Now for the type A people, you are frustrated with me right now because I just skipped verse 8 to verse 29, right? I know why, because I am frustrated myself for skipping those verses. But those verses simply give us example of faith that can be summarized in the verses that we just read. So maybe one day we will do mini-series on all the heroes of faith in Hebrew 11. Maybe, no promise. But this is the part of faith that we love, right? I mean, these people experience tension in faith. They experience a tension between what they believe and what they experience. And they look like they're about to be defeated. 
they face overwhelming odds, impossible circumstances. But then they chose to take God as His word. And then what happened? They triumphed. Breakthrough happened. Miracles occurred. God came true. And they experienced the power of faith. Okay, let's zoom in two stories. First, the story of Joshua and the wall of Jericho. So at the time, Jericho was the most fortified city in the land of Canaan. And we know at the time that Israel was not a nation of war because they, li- they left the life of slavery in Egypt and they wandered in wilderness for 40 years. So they did not have the equipment nor weapons needed to destroy the wall of Jericho. So now Joshua had no idea how they're supposed to conquer Jericho. He was faced with impossible situation. And then God showed up and tell, told Joshua the battle plan. God told him, Joshua, here's what I want you to do. For this battle, the praise and worship team will take the lead. So what do you do? Put Kimberly Antonio and Sarah Hansen at the front line and let them lead the army and tell them to march around the city of Jericho once a day. And they need to do the same thing for six days and they're not allowed to talk while they march around the city. On the seventh day, they have to march around the city seven times. And at the end of it, Victor will strum his electric guitar. Rang. And the moment everybody hears that's the sound of the guitar, they have to shout as loud as they can. And the wall of Jericho will crumble. Now, can we agree that this is a weird battle plan? But it worked. And the other Hebrew tell us that Jericho fell not by military might or no, but by faith. See, the battle of Jericho was not about Joshua nor his military strength, but it's about God. Because it was not Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho. It was God. And Joshua's role was simply to put his faith in God, in God's word, despite the overwhelming odd against him. Joshua believed that God exists and he rewards those who seek him. So Joshua took God as his word, and God proved himself faithful to Joshua. Let's look at another one. The story of Rahab. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Because if Joshua was a man of God, chosen by God to accomplish many great things, Rahab was the total opposite. See, the only thing common in between Joshua and Rahab was they both were approved by God because of faith. Because Rahab, she was not an Israelite. She was a citizen of Jericho, and she owned a brutal, literally. That's how she made a living. Now, if you do not know what brutal is, it is a bro hotel, where bro spends money and time to have sex with prostitutes. So Rahab is, was a prostitute, and that's how she make money. And she had few girls in her house to please her customer. Now, I do not know a lot about prostitution, but I know that no girl ever dreams of becoming a prostitute when they grow up. Babe, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mommy, I want to be a prostitute. I never heard that. What I hear is that it's every girl's dream to become a princess. 
not a prostitute. So for whatever reason, life did not work out as expected for Rahab. But then one day she heard of Israel and the God of Israel. She heard of all how this God conquered Egypt with the 10 plagues. She heard of how this God split the Red Sea into two for the Israelite to walk. She heard of all the nation that opposed Israel were destroyed. And here's what's amazing. She not only heard of this God, she believed on this God. See, and when the time come, when the two Israel spies came to Jericho, you know what Rahab did? She hit them. And what she did is actually an act of treason because she helped a nation that about to invade and destroy her country. If she's found out, she's killed immediately. She will be killed. And there was a tension there. On one hand, she was a prostitute of Jericho. On the other hand, she believed in the God of Israel. And when the moment came for her to make the choice between her life and the God of Israel, she chose God. And again, she was not a godly woman. She was not a woman character. She was a prostitute who chose to trust God. But by faith, she was spared from death when Joshua conquered Jericho. Rahab believed that God exists and he reward those who seek him. See, and the same can be said about all heroes in this list. Every single one of the heroes was approved by God because of their faith. See, there was tension between what they experienced, what they believed. But then they believed that God exists and God rewards those who seek Him. And that was differentiated them from other people. Not their accomplishment, not their status, not their nationality, their faith. And their story was written for our sakes. It helped us to have a bigger view of a God who is, of a God who's able. So you need to understand this. God can do the impossible. Nothing is impossible for God. It is part of God's job's description to make the impossible possible. Impossible is nothing does not originate from Adidas. It is the very descriptions of God. So this passage is written for us to believe for God, believe in God for the impossible. Now, if you know this old song, sing along with me because this song sums it up really well. God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. If you're able to sing along with me, let me just tell you, you're old. But here are some questions for us. Do we believe that God exists? Do we believe that God rewards those who seek Him? Are we trusting God as His Word? Because the stories, these stories tell us that God does work in extraordinary ways for people who take Him at His Word. And God wants to use us to accomplish His will on earth. Well, some of you might argue, but Yosh, you don't know who I am. Yosh, you do not know where I came from. Yosh, you do not know what I've done in the past. You do not know my background. Surely, if you know, you will not say that I am qualified for God to use me. 
But I want you to hear the good news of the gospel. Listen, it does not matter who we are, where we came from, or what we have done. God can accomplish great things in and through us if we put our faith in Him. In fact, it seems that God delight in choosing those who seem to be the most unlikely candidate. See, all these heroes of faith, they're not superheroes with no flaws. Oh no, my friend. They're superheroes with many flaws. In other words, they're just people like you and me. They have great failures as well. But they were approved by God because of faith. They took God as His word even when it did not make sense. And God did not see them in their flaw. God sees them in their faith. Listen, who knows what God might accomplish in and through us if we simply take Him at His word. And that's the first part. I mean, this is the happy part. This is the part about faith that we love. But there's another one, another part of faith that we rarely talk about. Talk about. The value of faith. Verse 35 to 38. Some were tortured, refusing to accept realists so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sewn into. They were killed with sword. They went about in skin of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and misreaded, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now you might say, wait, hold on a second. What happened to these people? Because what they experienced was the total opposite of the other group. See, if the first group experienced breakthrough in the situation, this group did not. Well, why? Was it because of their lack of faith? Well, that cannot be the reason because we'll find out soon that the order of Hebrew tell us that God also commanded them for their faith. So this, same, this group actually trusted God, that God exists and God rewards those who seek Him. They walk in obedience to God. And yet they got a totally different result from the other group. I mean, God could have intervened in their situation because God is not limited by anything. God is not limited by anyone's free will nor circumstances. But God did not always do it. See, here's what we must understand. Sometimes God delivers His people through faith, and at other times, God sustains His people through faith. Let me give you one example. You know the story. David and Jonathan. Now, King David, the most popular king of Israel, was a shepherd boy. He was a nobody. Even his family did, did not think much of him. But then God chose him to be king. And every time he experienced struggle, we found that God came true. David defeated Goliath. And when people tried to kill him, David escaped that. Not once, not once, not twice, but again and again and again. To the point that he became the greatest king of Israel. And he defeated enemies and he conquered kingdom. And he did all that by faith. In God. But that's another person. His name is Jonathan. Who's Jonathan? Jonathan was David's best friend. He was a prince. And Jonathan had the right over the throne of Israel. 
and he was a good man. He was faithful to God, and he's also faithful to David, his best friend, to the point that he was willing to let David take what is rightly his. He said, David, you are the next king of Israel. He was faithful to God, and he was faithful to his best friend, David. But at the end of his life, he lost everything. He died in a war, fighting a battle for his wicked father. Now, what happened? Was that because of his lack of faith? Of course not. Jonathan lived by faith in God, and he trusted God that David would be the next king of Israel and not him. Now, do you see what happened? David trusted God, and everything worked out for him. Jonathan trusted God, and he was killed. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure all of us will prefer to be David than Jonathan. I mean, we'll rather be those people, right, who achieve success and glory and attribute it all to God. I mean, we want to be like this Indonesian Olympic badminton winner who reached the height of fame and said, it's not me, it's all God. And all social media went crazy. Amazing! What a wonderful story. But according to the book of Hebrews, there's another group of people that God commanded for their faith. One that did not get to experience success and fame and breakthrough. One that's name, his name or her name never mentioned in social media. And this group is not less than the other group. God has a purpose for, his, for both groups. Both are part of his plan. See, in the first group, what happened was God showed the power of faith. But in the other group, God showed us the value of faith. The second group testified to us that having God is better than life. Look at verse 35b. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. So by faith, these people know that there was something better than life. Think about it. Let's say they died. And let's say God raised them back to life. That's an amazing story, right? That would be on social media. But as amazing as it was, it was only a resuscitation. Because even though they came back to life, they're still subject to suffering. They will eventually die again. In other words, it was just a temporary escape from death. But by faith, they understand that there's a better life, that they'll rise to a better life, that they will never taste death again, and they will be with God for eternity. And that is a better life, my friend. Now, do you see what happened? So their faith was not in what God could do for them. Oh, no. Their faith was not in their agenda for God. Their faith was in God. And my friend, you need to get this. This is what faith is. Faith does not say, if, love, if God loved me, he would. Faith says, even if God does not, he is still God. Now, this is why prosperity gospel is not the true gospel. Because the prosperity gospel tells us that it is never God's will for his people to be poor or sick or troubled or suffered in any way. 
So they see the evidence of God's blessing as material and physical well-being. And don't get me wrong. God does love to give good gift to His children. God delights in the successes of His children. But what we must understand that God's greatest gift for His people is not for His people to drive in a Lamborghini and live in a mansion. No, that's a lie. Because the greatest gift, the greatest blessing that God can give to His people is God Himself. Therefore, to live a life that glorify Him is the greatest joy. So any teaching that focuses on the gift of God over the person of God will simply lead us to idolatry rather than faith. It leads people to use God instead of loving God. See, God is glorified when sick people get well. But God is also glorified when sick people die well. Look at verse 37, 38. They were stoned. They were sown into. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skin of sheep and good, destitute, afflicted, misreaded, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Oh, I love that word. The world of whom the world was not worthy. So the world was not worthy of these people who died by faith. These people, they were God's gift to the world and the world did not deserve them. Because why? Because they showed to the world the value of faith that God is infinitely better than life. Their faith in God shows the world that there's something better than this life. See, in the eyes of the world, these people look stupid for their, for, for their faith. I mean, they died for their faith. That's dumb, right? But in the eyes of God, these people receive high distinction. So if you look at your life right now and you think that your life is terrible, but you love God and you trust God's word, let me tell you what God says about you. The world is not worthy of you. Your suffering is not signs of God's disapproval of you. You are not where you are because of your lack of faith. Oh no, my friend. You are where you are because God is testifying to the world through you that He's infinitely better than life. That's what happened. And look at what happened next, verse 39 to verse 40. And all this, though commanded through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So it's what the author is saying. The old covenant, as good as it was, it's not as good as the new covenant. All these heroes in the old covenant, none of them received what was promised. They only saw a glimpse of the fulfillment of the promise. They only saw the promise from afar because their faith was future-looking faith. But us, we're different. Today, we live in the new covenant. So if they look forward to something better, we have what they look forward to. And if they could achieve so much when they had something less, how much more for us? 
because today we have something better than them. We have the fulfillment of the new covenant. We have Jesus who fulfilled all of God's promises for us, which leads me to my third point, the focus of faith. Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, these two verses are gold. I mean, we can preach a whole sermon just based on these two verses. Because these two verses summarize what Christian life is all about. And this is the point of the book of Hebrew. So the author of Hebrew actually sum up Christian life, describe Christian life as a race. And we can't see it in English, but in Greek, there's only one command in these two verses. And everything else is built on this one command. And that one command is this, run. Because the author of Hebrew is encouraging his audience, remember, run. I mean, don't walk away from Jesus. Don't leave Jesus behind, but run. Run your race. Run with endurance. It means there's no such thing as passive Christianity. Christianity is a race. And it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Which means it requires commitment, endurance. It involves effort, struggle, determination. Christianity is a race of faith. But listen to what the order say. He says that the race, our race, is already set before us. Which means that we do not get to choose what kind of race we want to be in. God from eternity has set our race before us. And all of us have our own, own race to run. Now, let me tell you why this is important. Because one of the fastest ways to demotivate us in running our race is comparison. And I think this is one of the enemy main strategy to distract us from running our race. Because he says things like this, to me at least, well, yours, look at that pastor. I mean, that pastor, isn't he about the same age as you? But look at him. He has over a million followers on his Instagram. And not only that, but look at his church. He has over 10,000 people attending his church. And how many people attending your church again? How many followers do you have on Instagram? There must be something wrong with you, yours. I mean, you cannot be a good pastor. I mean, are you sure that the gospel is worth it? I mean, who wants to hear messages about suffering anyway? No one wants to hear that. That's the reason no one comes to your church. I mean, if you just tell people what they want to hear, you can be big, you can be great. You can have over a million followers and you can have a great church. I mean, isn't that how the enemy tried to distract us a lot of time? And the author tells us, stop. Do not compare your race with other people. Because God in His sovereignty has set the race before us. And our role is to stay faithful in our race. We must stay in our race. So you get this. 
We cannot choose our race and we cannot run other people's race, but we can run a race of faith and finish well. See, in Olympic, there can only be one person who wins a race. But in a Christian race, everyone, all who persevere to the end, win. Because we do not compete against one another. Our role is to simply to remain faithful in our race by faith. Okay, and then the order of Hebrews will tell us how do we run a faith. Okay? How do we run a race of faith? There's three things that he tells us to do. First, remember that we are surrounded by many witnesses. Now let me confess. I often think of these witnesses as spectators. So the picture that I have is as I run my race, right? All these witnesses are cheering for me from heaven, saying, you know, oh, Yossi, Yossi, you're so fine, you're so fine, you rock my world. Oh, Yossi. Oh, Yossi. I mean, I think there's some truth to it, okay? But I don't think that's what the order is primarily saying. Because these witnesses are not so much cheerleaders in a stadium, but rather witnesses in a courtroom, in a courtroom. So they're not simply watching our race, but rather they're testifying to us in our race. So what happened is these witnesses, they're testifying to us as we run our race that by faith, we can also finish our race. So what happened is this. So Joshua is actually testifying to me right now. Hey, Yos, faith in God is worth it. Because by faith, I conquered Jericho and I finished my race. And if I can finish my race, you can finish your race too. And so when I look to the right now, there's Rahab. And Rahab is also testifying to me, Hey, yours, faith in God is precious. By faith, I hit two spies and I finished my race. And if I can finish my race, you can finish your race too. And not only Joshua and Rahab. So now I look at Abraham. I look at Moses. I look at Jacob. I look at... Every one of those heroes, and they're testifying to me that by faith, they finished their race. And because of that, by faith, I can finish my race as well. Samson's telling me the same thing. David's telling me the same thing. Gideon are telling me the same thing. By faith, we can finish our race. So whenever we feel weary, whenever we feel exhausted, whenever we doubt, remember that we are surrounded by so many witnesses who testify to us, by faith, we can finish our race. Second, remove every weight and sin. Now, weight and sin, they're different. Okay, let's talk about weight first. Weight is whatever slows us down from running our race. So weight is not sin, but weight can lead to sin. Let me give an example. See, we're currently in Olympic season, right? And the one event that I love the most about the Olympic is the 100-meter race. Now, if you watch the 100-meter race, then you know that they lay aside everything that slowed them down. That's why they're wearing very light and tight shirt and short. In fact, in ancient times, they would run naked. Why? Because it helped them to run faster. Okay, of course, today we don't run naked. Otherwise, they're put in jail. Well, here's the question, though. Well, can this Olympic runner run their race with sword and tie? 
Well, it's not against the rule to do so, but it's not going to help them win the race. It's dumb to run 100-meter race with suit and tie because it will slow them down. Well, except if you're James Bond, of course. So weight is anything that slows us down in our race, whatever does our affection for Jesus. And this is crucial. Because I think a lot of time, we do not ask the right question. A lot of time, we simply ask, well, is there sin? And that's a good question. But another question that we need to ask is not only is there a sin, but does it help me run my race better? Because weight is not sin. Weight could be a good thing that slows us down in our race. And weight looks different for different people. See, for some people, it might be Netflix. For some people, it might be games. For some people, it might be ambition, habit, friendship. Or maybe for some people, it might be social media. And the encouragement is this, if we want to run race well, we must be very intentional about removing any weight in our life. The second one, we also need to remove sin which clings so closely. Now pay attention to this. Everyone, without exception, has a sin that clings so closely to us. Now this is not a generic sin. This is a specific sin that we are more prone to it. It is a sin that's waiting for us every day when we wake up in the morning just outside our front door. You know what I'm talking about? Another name for it is besetting sin. And once again, this sin looks different for different people. For some of us, it might be sexual sin. It might be pornography. While for others, it might be what? Drunkenness, pride, covetousness. And what the order strength is, you got to remove that from your life. So don't just know that you should not do it, but act in such a way that you will not do it. Because sin lies to us. Because sin will tell us, well, yes, there's nothing wrong with drinking a can of beer. There's nothing wrong with going to the pub after work. There's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol. Many Christians do that. And yes, I agree. There's absolutely nothing wrong with drinking alcohol. But if drunkenness is a sin that's waiting in front of your door every single morning, if drunkenness is your besetting sin, then maybe you gotta, you must take drastic measure to kill it. So don't believe the love of sin. Every sin always starts small, but it won't take long before it consumes us. Remove every weight and sin. And last, look to Jesus. And I think this is the most important part. Because we can only run our race with endurance if we focus on our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the focus of our faith. Back in the day, I was a sprinter. Okay, I know I do not look like one today, but I was one. I ran 100 meters, 200, and 400 for my school. And I remember my very first race against other school. I was very nervous, right? But I had a very good coach. So he trained me for the race, and he was very kind. And he realized I was super nervous before the race. So he came to me and said, well, Yos, I know you must be very nervous. But this is what I want you to do. 
I want you to clear your mind. Do not think about other runners. Just concentrate on running the race. So this is what you do. When you get to that starting block, don't look to the right or to the left. Just look straight because I'll wait for you at the finish line. So just focus your eyes on me and run as fast as you can. You are fast. I mean, my coach was so kind to me to the point that I thought and I was convinced that he had a crush on my sister. But that's exactly what I did. So I got on the block. I do not look to the right or to the left. I simply focused my eyes on my coach and I ran as fast as I could. And that is the picture the author of Hebrews is telling us here. Don't look to the right. Don't look to the left. Stop comparing. Focus your eyes on Jesus and run as fast as you can. Because Jesus is the founder and perfecter of your faith. Now, I love that phrase, founder and perfecter of our faith. It's a very interesting phrase because it has many layers of meaning. But I think it has two primary meanings. First one. The word founder and perfecter mean that Jesus was the one who made faith possible by his finished work at the cross. Remember, Jesus is our perfect high priest and Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the object of our faith. So without Jesus, our faith is useless. But because of Jesus' perfect work, our faith today is not futile. That's the first meaning. But there's another meaning to the phrase founder and perfecter of our faith. It tells us that Jesus is not only the object of our faith, but Jesus is also the author of our faith. So when Jesus ascended to heaven and sat at the right hand of God, it was not like Jesus got promoted and simply became king of this world. See, the throne of God, where Jesus was seated right now, is not a place up in the sky, or no. See, heaven is another realm that different from this world. So when Jesus ascended to God's throne, he did not get promoted to a level above us. He did not simply become a king who seated on the throne because a king has some control over our life. But no king has absolute control. A king cannot control every detail of life. But for Jesus to sit at the right hand of God means that he entered a different realm. Okay, sorry to use this illustration. Some of you will appreciate it. Some of you are like, what? It's like what happened in the Korean drama W. Okay, you know what happened if you watch the drama? So what happened was the main character in the story actually gets sucked up out of the story. So he walked away from the realm of story and he entered the realm of authorship. And that is the picture of what happened with Jesus. When Jesus ascended to heaven, it was like Jesus was sucked out out of a story so that he moved from the realm of a story to a realm of authorship. It means that right now, Jesus is not simply sitting on the king's throne chair, or no, but he's also sitting in the author's chair. Right now, Jesus is the author of our faith. He is the author of our story. He is the author of our race. And if Jesus is the author, it means 
He's in absolute full control of everything that happens in the story. See, there's nothing that happened in the story that surprises Jesus. He is the order of our faith. And because he is the order, he can guarantee the completion of our faith. See, my friend, this is why we can run with endurance. Because Jesus has finished his work and he's right now sustaining our faith to the end as the order of our faith. Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. But that's not enough. Here's the question. Well, how can we be sure that the author of our faith is good to us? What is the guarantee that he will not change his mind about us? Here's how we know. Who for the joy that was set before him injured the cross. See, what do we see when we look to Jesus? We see that he suffered. We see that Jesus was afflicted. Jesus was not alien to pain, my friend. No, he entered the world of pain and injured the cross. But why? Why did Jesus do that? The author said that what sustained Jesus through the cross was the joy beyond the cross. But what joy? I mean, what joy that Jesus did not have before he injured the cross? Was it the joy of the Father? Was it the joy of God's glory? No. Because he already had all that from eternity. The joy that Jesus did not have until he injured the cross, you, me, the joy of having us. That means Jesus injured the cross for you and I. I mean, can you imagine that? Jesus loved us to the cross. We are his joy. And he is committed to our joy to the very end. He will not give us halfway, give up halfway. How do we know? The cross of Jesus Christ. And that is what we see when we look to Jesus. And that is where we find strength and endurance to run our race. It is not our endurance that guarantee we'll finish the race. It is the fact that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the focus of our faith. So how do we run our faith? How do we run our race of faith? Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for we have a God who not only set our race before us, but we have a God who finished his race first and foremost so that because of that, we can have confidence that we can run our race. And we have a God who is the author of our race. And that's why we can have the confidence that we will complete our race. So every time that we're tempted to give up, help us to look to you. Remind us of what your son Jesus Christ has done for us. And I pray that we'll find strength to continue to run with angels, the race that is set before us. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.